You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, Research Analyst at the Center for Technology Innovation. I am filling in as the guest host for this episode. Last year, Nicole, Neum, and I got together to chat about what it means to build back better with telehealth. And we, as co-authors, will be releasing a paper titled The Roadmap to Telehealth Efficacy, Care, Health, and Digital Equities. Our paper offers a blueprint for more efficacious and sustainable telehealth within our current healthcare system. Telehealth use increased massively over the COVID pandemic as people were not able to attend in-person appointments because of physical distancing measures. Federal and state governments loosened existing restrictions on telehealth, allowing a massive increase in telehealth use across the board. As of July 2022, two years into the COVID pandemic, more and more of our daily lives return to being in-person, from school to work to gathering with friends and more. With this, the emergency orders, especially the ones facilitating greater use of telehealth, have been quickly expiring. Many conveniences that people benefited from with regards to remote healthcare may no longer be readily available or reimbursable to providers. Moreover, the digital divide reared its ugly head, and there are thousands of citizens, especially those on the wrong side of health equity, who do not have either broadband or an internet-enabled device to partake in this healthcare economy. Joining me today are my co-authors of our recently published telehealth paper, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow of Governance Studies and the Director for Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, and Neam Yuragi non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation and assistant professor of business technology at the University of Miami Herbert Business School. Nicole, Neam, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's get ready to dig into the implications of the fate and future of telehealth. Thank you, Samantha. Thanks for having us. And thank you always for being a great guest host. Thank you for having me. Great to be back here. Yes, super excited for this. So the last time we were on this podcast together, we documented the expansion of telehealth over the pandemic, how an increase in available modalities can facilitate health equity, and how health information exchanges have been modernized with the digitization of health services. If anyone is interested in hearing more about that, you can listen to our podcast episode 33, How to Build Back Better with Telehealth. In this new paper, The Roadmap to Telehealth Efficacy, Care, Health, and Digital Equities, we lay out a triage roadmap to telehealth adoption and use. Nicole, why don't you dig in first and share with the listeners what we mean? Yeah, thanks, Samantha. And I think this is such a timely conversation. You know, look, I was out over the holiday weekend and it appears that COVID is becoming a distant memory to many people, right? I was telling somebody, I have a new saying, it's what, COVID what? COVID who? Because people are not walking around with masks and we feel a better comfort. In fact, someone said to me, doesn't it feel good to know that we're actually coming out of this? So I think as we move from pandemic to endemic, you know, it's going to be increasingly clear that uh, we were able to navigate through such a public health tragedy. The same token, one of the areas that came out of 
the COVID-19 pandemic was the accelerated use of telehealth. And in the paper, we define telehealth as a delivery and facilitation of health and health-related services, including medical care, provider and patient education, health information services, and self-care via telecommunications and digital communication technologies. And I share that because oftentimes, one, we talk about telehealth, remote health, And we're not always on the same page. But two, we actually instituted, and Neam and I have been doing this for a really long time, remote healthcare in a way that made sense for most Americans. You know, we didn't do too well when it came to education, maybe not as well in terms of equitable access for all remote workers. But I think in the telehealth space, we actually found ourselves doing quite well, particularly since the pandemic made it imperative that many people could not go into a physical office to be treated. The other reason I think we moved away from, you know, just telehealth for the common cold or being able to see, you know, if you had the flu to really ensuring that people also did not transmit COVID into doctor's offices or nursing homes or schools or among their family. So I think that's a plus, right? When we think about what we were able to do with innovation, which was a long time coming. So when we decided to write this paper, I think one of the things that we wanted to do was to sort of, again, echo the common conversations and arguments we make when it comes to why can't we just keep doing this, right? Obviously, for many of you who follow telehealth, we haven't been able to do this successfully before the pandemic, primarily due to a series of federal and state restrictive laws. And right before the pandemic, we were getting closer when it came to parity for reimbursement so that people could have some level of assurance, at least the clinicians, that they would be reimbursed for telehealth services. But it was not ubiquitously deployed and it wasn't deployed across states in a uniform and meaningful way. Fortunately, we actually saw that, you know, federal waivers actually precipitated a huge shift in an increase in its use. But why do we as authors call it a triage approach? You know, obviously we're playing off of the triage that happens in medical rooms. But more importantly, we think at this next iteration of telehealth, particularly as the emergency orders begin to expire, it's important to have the full ingredients. Telehealth worked because it actually leveraged values-based care, which Neam will get more into. It leveraged health equity. We saw a 100%-fold increase among patients that did not normally have a primary care doctor that relied upon telehealth for a variety of functions to stay safe at a time when the country was in crisis. And then digital equity. And my hope is that we'll look at this conversation that we're having today and the paper we're putting out that actually looks at the role of this recently deployed infrastructure money that is accelerating broadband as infrastructure to actually help us leverage and build the type of capacity that we need for this type of remote engagement. I was watching Transportation Secretary Buttigieg the other day speak about providing racial equity in roads, roads that traditionally have not been built in communities of color. We need to do 
the same thing when it comes to broadband, particularly if we want people to feel comfortable that they have a choice of going into a doctor physically and being able to rely upon a remote connection. So my 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 hope is, and I'll pass it over to Neam, I'm sorry to sound like a pastor, a preacher, that we're finally getting to a space where we actually realize in this national pilot that this is actually a resourceful tool that has innovated healthcare. Healthcare didn't create telehealth in the way we saw the pandemic. You know, it was a combination of federal criteria along with what we believe are the synergies that existed between these areas of care equity, health equity, and digital equity. And those should be framing our future conversations for more sustainable use. So Neil, I'm going to be quiet because, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll get into this. But uh, Samantha, I hope that sort of helps readers understand the basis for the forthcoming piece that we're putting out. Yeah, that is an excellent summary for what we have. Neam, do you have anything to add to that? I think it was a very beautiful summary as well. Oh, thank you, guys. That's what's the benefit of having two great co-authors. Now, look, don't get us wrong for people who are listening. This paper took quite some time because there were many, many changes that happened with regards to whether or not the orders from CMS were going to expire, whether or not those orders were going to stay. So we're really proud of the final result because it'll be more relevant particularly in this conversation today. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So going back to the context, the background of kind of where we're writing from today, Niam, would you mind helping me outline some key policy developments where we've seen restrictions on the use of telehealth reimposed after emergency orders have been expiring? Why does it matter for us to still worry about the state of telehealth right now? It's an interesting question because when we look at the changes that happened during the COVID, it is very difficult to characterize them as efforts to promote telehealth by the government. I think it would be much fairer to describe them as removal of reasonable inhibitors of telehealth adoption by both providers and and. Uh, Patients. So I'll give you an example. For you know, before COVID pandemic, if you wanted to see your doctor virtually, you had to do it through a certified telecommunication software, meaning that you could not use FaceTime, you could not use WhatsApp or or Skype, but you had to specifically install a particular software that you've never heard of. And then only use that in order to see your doctor, because that was the software that was certified by us to be complying with all the HIPAA privacy rules. Well, they removed that restriction so that people could now use FaceTime to see their doctor the same way that they use the software to communicate with any other person in their life. So you can imagine that those obstacles were put in between the patient and the provider prohibiting them from conducting telehealth in a meaningful way. Another one was the fact that if you were, for example, a resident of D.C., you could not see a doctor who was licensed in Florida, which, again, doesn't make sense because in today's digital life, we are beyond borders. You know, there, there are no physical boundaries that are meaningful anymore in the digital world, except for digital health. The bright side of the COVID pandemic was that many of these unreasonable restrictions were removed. I do not see many of these being put back in place because once the genie is out of the bottle, especially if 
everybody likes it, then it becomes very difficult to put it back in. So that is the bright side of the story. Yeah, though we do unfortunately see some restrictions kicking back in, taking, for example, how with the expiration of some emergency orders, there are states that no longer allow cross-state licensure, and that there are also states that are placing restrictions on definitions for telehealth, for example, limiting asynchronous or audio-only services. So that's something that we do have to worry about. And Nicole, would you mind telling us kind of on the other side of the coin, states that have, as a result of the pandemic, decided to make permanent certain telehealth provisions? Yeah, I mean, I think what Niam is saying, it's so interesting that for decades, it's been hard for there to be some, you know, I don't want to say consensus, but some leaning in on the importance of telehealth use prior to the pandemic. And I love what Niam is talking about, that again, all the ingredients were in place for us to actually see some actual movement. And what's been interesting about it, we have seen, Samantha, to your point, you know, certain states take different actions in extending some of the state licensure agreements, for example. 14 states in the United States and four U.S. territories, for example, have allowed long-term and permanent state licensure waivers for telehealth providers. I don't know when we would have saw that right before the pandemic in terms of that type of permanency when it comes to whether or not, you know, those types of unsettled points at the federal level were actually going to be allowable or permissible. And then we've seen, Samantha, some short-term waivers, which again, I think are going to be somewhat contingent on some of the emergency orders still expiring. You know, the interesting thing about the pandemic to Neam's point, it's been like a, I want to say like a start and stop race where there's probably been a leading in not either not go permanent or to stay more temporary until further notice, we continue to see COVID numbers stay pretty active in certain regions. I just saw a report for example, in the DMV area, we're mostly safe when it comes to rates of new infections, but that's not the case in places like Texas and Mississippi, I understand. So again, I think, you know, we're seeing some movement with regards to some states just saying, hey, you know, we're just going to go ahead and make this important to our legislature. But there are other places where they're still debating and negotiating certain aspects of it, which for the purposes of our paper, we wanted to kind of move away from just the state-by-state battles to figure out, is there a more comprehensive roadmap so that when states are thinking about things like not respecting certain modalities or being less flexible, for example, with those modalities or not honoring the provision of cross-state line services, that they're also being sensitive that this is a new wave of healthcare that should not necessarily be fought, but might be embraced because it works when it comes to certain populations. Just one thing on that, my mother suffers from a case of leukemia. And, you know, even though a telehealth visit is not necessarily going to draw her blood, it does allow for a very constant check-in to make sure that her energy is up, that her, you know, her, her body functions are moving, that she's not overly or excessively fatigued or not triggering what they might think is an urgent occasion for her to go into the emergency room. She's over 75. So I think things like that states are starting to respond to and understanding that the innovation is a It's the extent to which many states who are pretty much always in control of how these systems work at the local level, that they're actually recognizing, you know, just how important they are and how complementary they are to traditional health care. 
And to build upon what Nicole said, the beautiful thing about the U.S. is that every state basically has a lot of autonomy in yes. designing their own policies. So while it is true that some of the states have been trying to roll back some of these emergency orders, the trend overall is towards more freedom, towards towards making those changes more permanent while you have different extents of freedom in different states, depending on their politics, depending on their economy, depending on the the things that they value and how powerful the medical lobby is within that state. The overall trend is towards more liberation. I would use the example of medical marijuana or recreational use of marijuana. Some states are much more lenient than other states. However, overall, I think we can say that the approach, the policy approach in the United States have been towards legalization and decriminalization of marijuana, despite differences at the state level. Yeah, we do see a lot of really important steps being taken right now to expand access to telehealth. So my next question for both of you is, what are the populations that most benefit from increased flexibilities in modalities in state licensure and more? Well, I can speak to that. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of telehealth ever since two decades ago. I was able to watch Dr. Karen Rubin show a bunch of us a telehealth visit off of Anchorage, Alaska, where they were doing at that time a secondary care visit on dermatological treatment. You know, today, almost two decades later, I hate to say that, but it is, we're now seeing telehealth do primary care services and secondary as well as tertiary care and prevention, diagnosis, self-treatment, right, Neam? We're seeing a lot of that in terms of people just getting more agency over the healthcare in ways that we haven't been able to see that before. So I think, you know, for the people who are most medically vulnerable, that is really important. What we saw during the pandemic, for example, among Black and Latino patients is we did see a huge increase among those patients, which made a lot of sense on the health equity front. Many of those folks are driving these because, you know, I'm writing a book on the digital divide, as most of you know, they don't have the credit card to actually have an Uber account to be able to take advantage of lower transportation from ride sharing services. So they're either relying upon taxis at at market value, or they're taking two to three buses to get to a specialty doctor. The fact that telehealth allowed many African-American and Latina and tribal folks to pick up a cell phone, a smartphone, have the capacity within their purse or the ability when they didn't have video to be able to make a phone call, I think really helped us to mitigate the crisis in particular among populations that were dying two to one when it came to susceptibility to the COVID-19 and death. So I just think that when I think about telehealth, Years ago, I used to say it really is a form of health equity. It's a form of health justice. And today, we need to take that into consideration. We need states to think long and hard about that, particularly when you think about modalities. And that's why we frame the paper as being a triage approach, because those same people who are medically underserved are also digitally underserved. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little later. But they're the folks that land up using emergency rooms as their primary care service and facility and then landing up in medical debt as a result of that. And so I think for states who are considering what to do next, you need to think about its placement in the health equity sphere because those folks 
did benefit. And, and I've read recent reports that have suggested, well, these numbers are stalling right now and they're sort of leveling off. Well, we don't want them to because, you know, chronic diseases require, or what I mentioned with my mother, they require that, you know, real time, regular communications with your medical providers. And we also know in these populations, we're giving them an opportunity to be in safe spaces of their homes or a relative's home to talk with their doctors. But when you're trying to find your HIV status or talk to a medical provider, it's better to do that from the comfort of your phone in a personal and private space. So, you know, Sam, I I think that question is so relevant because I think that that often gets kicked to the curb as something that's a recommendation number five. And what we really try to do is contextualize health equity in tandem with care equity and digital equity. And, you know, the current feature of most information technologies is that they will level the playing field. Think about ride-sharing services such as Uber. Whom did it help the most? The people who had a car or the people who were living very far from public transportation and also didn't have a car? It helped the second group. Think about, say, online education. Did it help the people who were restrained to public schools with low quality education, or did it help the people who already had access to private schooling or high quality public education? Well, it again helped the people in the first group. I think the story is the same with telehealth. If you're living in an area which is very close to all the major medical service providers and you have a good insurance, well, telehealth may not be as beneficial to you. Whereas if you're a person who is living very far from major medical service providers and you probably do not have a good insurance and you are also not enjoying all the you know economic luxuries that other people may be enjoying. And as Nicole said, you have to go to an ER for a simple medical complaint and then receive a humongous bill, which will set you back even further. Telehealth is actually going to be a life changer for you. So in the sense that it is going to help equity, I completely agree with that. It is an inherent feature of technology. Yeah, Niam, and kind of building on that too, would you mind also telling us about how telehealth ties in with value-based care, which I know you've done a lot of work on? Yeah, I think this is a this is a very difficult balance to make. You know, on one hand, we want to expand telehealth so that everybody would have access to to healthcare. And on the surface, it seems like that the ultimate goal the things that telehealth is optimizing on is in contradiction with the optimal goal of value-based care in the sense that telehealth wants to increase access, whereas value-based care tends to decrease access. So if you are at, say, an affordable, you know, accountable care organization, one of the things that you will be bragging about is that it reduced the number of office visits, for example, or you have reduced certain medical procedures among the population 
that you're managing their care. Whereas if you are an IT person in charge of expanding telehealth services of a hospital, then you will be bragging about how much you have increased the number of telehealth visits or how much you've increased the revenue that the hospital you know, gains through telehealth. So on the surface, it seems like, well, if you want to expand telehealth, then you cannot expand value-based care. However, I think there are very smart strategies that you can use telehealth as a very powerful tool in order to achieve value-based care. So it would be much more expensive for a medical provider to do an in-person visit. It will be very expensive for the medical provider, again, building on the example that Nicole said with the case of her mother, it would be very expensive for an uh, ACO to take care of a patient who is coming in to the ER because they missed a warning sign because they were not able to see the patient physically, right? So now if you try to figure out how to implement telehealth within your value-based care system so that you can see the patient virtually and through those virtual visits, you may be able to pick up on the signs that, you know, there are some warning signs that I have to now be proactive. Now I have to call in the patient to see the patient in person, or I have to do this particular medical intervention in order to avoid an upcoming uh, emergency visits, then you are using telehealth in such a way that both the patient and the provider would be benefiting because obviously the patient does not want to go to the ER unnecessarily, especially if it was you know avoidable. And also the provider doesn't want to be paying for the cost of care that they, they potentially have to bear. So I, I think it is very important for us to think very deeply about how we can use telehealth as a tool to reach the value-based care within our policy framework. Yes, definitely, definitely. So we have covered health equity, care equity. Nicole, can you tell us more about digital equity and how that also interacts with the Biden administration's Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act? Oh, certainly, <laughs> right? This is the area that I think gets me most excited when I think about telehealth in this day and age. You know, listen, the Biden administration, for those of you who don't know, has recently passed about $65 billion in terms of resources for the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act towards broadband connectivity. And what that means that they are seeking to serve unserved, underserved, and pretty much everybody else in terms of community anchor institutions, including hospitals and clinics, as part of this allocation. It's in that order, but it's across rural, urban, and tribal lands. So what that means is in the next four years, it's expected that we will make a dent in the U.S. digital divide, which I think is exciting for people like myself who see technology as an on-ramp to a variety of quality of life opportunities, including one's well-being. With that being said, we also know that telehealth is a precursor. It needs connectivity, right? It's not tele, it's not remote without some form of telecommunication services, which is why, again, I go back to this modality conversation. It was very significant and it remained so until we have most of America connected to ensure that we have flexibility and modality. If we put 
restrictions on modality. And even for that matter, whether or not it's an in-person live, you know, synchronous or asynchronous, which could be archived, curated information. We even put restrictions on that. I think we're going to lose the health equity aspect of the triage approach in which we're proposing. With that being said, you know, digital equity matters. When people have access to digital resources, much like Neam, you know, repeated what I said, you are unable to compete with the, in the digital economy, access conveniences like ride sharing services, remotely learn, remotely work, remotely receive healthcare, gather with friends and families in ways that you can cross borders and boundaries and be in contact with folks. You know, at the end of the day, being connected matters. And so my hope is that we'll look at healthcare as part of the infrastructure goals. Now, I know implicitly the Biden administration has placed this as one of the reasons why they want accelerated broadband. And I do have some concerns that some of the conversations that we're having now when it comes to digital equity is focused on the supply side of it. Where are we connecting more fiber assets to make sure more people are connected to the internet? How are we bringing more resources to small and mid-sized providers so they can also have the same type of leverage as incumbent providers? That's all important. But at the end of the day, demand and particularly what I espouse, the problems that we're trying to solve with the access to new technology really matter. We should be looking at telehealth as the residual effect of real solid health infrastructure. Does that make sense, Neam, to you? Like we should not be trying to build infrastructure and hope that people will take advantage of telehealth. We should be investing in infrastructure so that we have the type of health infrastructure assets, whether it's the broadband, the type of delivery, the quality of service when it comes to reimbursement. To us, we write in the paper, that's what's missing in this conversation. You know what I mean, Neam? Like yeah, we're making I- the apple pie in pieces and not necessarily baking it all together. I I, I completely agree with you, especially when you're saying the quality of care. I think it ties very nicely to our uh, previous discussion about equity, because there is a dark side to telehealth. We're we're hoping that it would help with making a level playing field. However, that depends very heavily on proper use of telehealth where two examples where it actually may backfire. You know, if a medical provider figures out that, oh, they can use telehealth and telehealth is much cheaper, more convenient for them without regard to actual quality of outcome, then what they can do is that they can cluster their patients into two groups, telehealth people and in-person people. Telehealth is going to only be focused, say, on underinsured people or Medicaid patients, whereas in-person is going to be reserved for privately insured people who can who can pay, you know, better. And and that that would exacerbate the currently existing inequalities in access to healthcare, right? So the people that may have been able to go and see the doctor now are pushed to the telehealth channel. Now, I don't have any problem with that unless we can say, hey, not every medical service is suitable to be provided through telehealth, right? If we can show that, look, there's some services that you would better see the person in person, 
right? Then in those cases, then we won't say, okay, you, you would better bring in people and, and do not use this telehealth as a tool to exacerbate the problems that we already have. Another example is this newly emerging debate about privacy divide that we have in this day and age is that, well, if we argue that underserved people are more likely to be receiving care through telehealth, it means that they are also more prone to privacy breaches, right? If everything's going, if everything about my care is going to be digitalized, then I'd be more prone to suffering from privacy breaches. And we don't want that either. So the point that I want to make is we have to be very careful about the application of telehealth in particular areas that we know is going to increase the quality of care and is going to provide care to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to to receive it in a way that it is also in line with the goals overall. Yeah. You know, can I actually, Sam, pick up on what Niamh says? I love that, right? Because I think we Look, we are all like pro telehealth, right? obviously in this paper, but I think Neam brings up some really important considerations, which I think are probably the bustling and, and Neam, Neam, you and I have written about this as well, of some of the undertones of what we need to be very careful and considerate of with telehealth. And that is, you know, we don't want doctors to sort of misuse this either, right? By suggesting and go back to my mother, hey, I can tell your blood type or your blood condition or quality just by looking at you. Clearly, I have a 70 plus New York mother who does not miss a beat and will get into a ride sharing service and take her way up to Memorial Sloan Kettering, right? But that's not every family. So we have to really continue to raise awareness, which I think is a great policy imperative for states who are keeping some of these emergency orders permanent, engaging in education. I know the American Medical Association has also done some work on what are some of the eligible services where we know telehealth works great. We know telepsychiatry has been one of those areas. I think, you know, the fact that we accelerated out the door to your point, Neam, does mean that we need to also simultaneously sort of think through where are we going to get the bang for the buck and in reducing cost to patients as well as clinicians, but also improving and extending life course and lifespans. And I think that's a conversation that I'd love to see more of. It's so interesting. We've seen in remote education the same kind of phenomena where we're like, oh, this worked for some, it didn't work for others, but we're going to keep staying on this in some way or form, but we haven't collected really good data. And so I think, again, going forward, I think there's been some efforts, right, Niam and Samantha, to collect good data around some of the telehealth services, but that should definitely be part of the conversation going forward. Yes, there is. And as you said, I think, with the expansion of telehealth, something that should not be ignored is about patient education. Yes. The nature of the relationship between a doctor and a patient is very different in a sense that the doctor always comes from a position of authority that has been coded into our culture. And uh, the patients should be educated that it's not always true. You know, sometimes you may be taken advantage of. Sometimes you may actually need to go in person, but you're being encouraged to do it via telehealth. 
And in those cases, you should be like Nicole's mom that takes that Uber and goes to the hospital and says, here I am. Uh, right, right. She has no no problem doing that, showing up and saying, no, you cannot look at me via a, a camera. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's really funny. Yeah, those are all really good points. So tying all of that together, what key recommendations do we have in our paper following all our findings and all our thoughts of how we can strike a balance with privacy, with making sure that everyone's getting the right care and that healthcare will develop in a way that is equitable and accessible for all? Well, I would say, you know, a couple of recommendations that I think are critical to this conversation we're having now are related to the role of the federal government in steering the course of, you know, the susceptibility and permissibility of telehealth use. So I think what CMS did and continues to do is to make it okay for uh, providers to look to telehealth as an option. And I think they should continue to do that. And I was in a recent conversation with community health clinics. They need to make even the lowest common denominator of our care in this country comfortable that they know that when they do this work, they will be reimbursed. I remember a story a couple of months ago, speaking to a group of community health providers. And one guy said, listen, I don't get reimbursed, but I do it because, you know, this is part of the oath that I take as a doctor. We do need to really make sure that we're steering an engine that has all parts and not as favoring the bigger companies or bigger clinicians or more stable, right? I also think that, you know, what we've talked about too, that modality neutrality is really important. Until we have full digital equality, we need to be sensitive to the fact that not everybody will have the the most common and reimbursable paths into telehealth delivery. And that's very important. And I think that, you know, what we also put in the paper is obviously around federal privacy, which looks like we could be going in some direction when it comes to a federal privacy bill. There's still some concerns around what legislative text is out there, but we have new concerns in this space that we didn't even cover in the course of the paper, which is the overturn of Roe versus Wade and the extent to which, you know, those types of visits are also protected given some of the state restrictions on the execution of abortion. So that's something else I think that is worth speaking about. Out. And then I would say the other recommendation that we place is really the importance of the healthcare community sort of stepping into the broadband debate, not sitting on the sidelines, hoping that there'll be enough supply for hospitals and clinics and you know individual providers to use this technology in communities that are underserved, rural, or urban, or tribal. But I would love for you know our recommendation around really making healthcare part of the infrastructure conversation. The same way that we talk about roads and bridges, we should talk about healthcare as such. I think that's something that we put in there. And Niam, I, I know we also had one on values-based care. So I wanted to make sure I gave you that, that shout out for that one in terms of value-based payment initiatives. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, I think we have to understand that telehealth is very nuanced. It is, it's like the term mobile, right? We say mobile technology, but it is very nuanced. There's a lot of different applications of, of mobile technology for good or for bad. So in order to correctly apply that technology, we have to develop a better understanding of this. And we are at the very early stages of it. I think this paper helps 
a lot with understanding this beast. But I think patients, providers, payers, and policymakers have to be very cognizant about the fact that this is a huge, huge technology and its implications are different for different groups of people and for different medical conditions. For example, I know CMS is actively looking at the effectiveness of telehealth across different patient populations for different medical conditions. So it may be really good to expand telehealth for a particular type of service, but not for another kind of service or for another population of patients in particular geographies. Another more interesting and exciting part is how this technology will tie into other innovations that we have going on in our country. In the paper, we talk about how health information exchange ties into telehealth and how these two actually create a positive synergy for one another. Each of them are basically empowering the other one. And, um, you know, I think my, my recommendation is to keep an open mind and understand that this is not a blank statement. There are potentials and opportunities of telehealth are quite expanded and it will affect our life in very profound ways very soon. Yeah, definitely. So thank you so much again for coming onto this podcast and for all your insight. And it was super fun co-writing this paper with both of you. I'm very excited for this to come out. Again, this will be out around the same time of our podcast. It's called The Roadmap to Telehealth Efficacy. Care, Health, and Digital Equities, and it was co-authored by Nicole Neum and me. Yeah, yay! And please read it, download it, and listen to this podcast and send questions. But it was great working with you guys always. Thank you. I also enjoyed collaborating with both of you. Yeah, thank you. This has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bytes. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I'm Samantha Lai, Research Analyst of the Center for Technology Innovation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.